Welcome to 10 Minute Theology, thinking rightly about God, scriptures, and the church 10 minutes at a time, with Joel Wentz. Just a few more. So, as you may have gathered by the length of this episode, what follows is a bit of a departure from the 10 Minute Theology formula. What it is, is the audio from a lecture I gave just this past week at a young adult gathering here in Portland. It got really good feedback, and I'm happy with how it went, so I thought I would share it here on the podcast feed. But no worries, next week I will return to the 10-minute episode form. But this talk is simply titled Old Testament Crash Course. Um, I gave it to this gathering of adults who was interested in studying and learning a little bit more about how to approach the Old Testament. So you should know that the audio was captured on a small handheld recorder, so the quality is just a little bit lower. Uh, It still sounds fine, but it's just a little bit lower than normal podcast quality. And also, I refer to a worksheet repeatedly throughout. Uh, I've included in the show notes a link to download this worksheet, a PDF file, and it's also available on my website. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can download it, print it, or follow along there. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this Old Testament crash course. So, I have worksheets. And uh, there's if you have... You're going to want something to write with. If you don't already have one, there's like a little basket of pens and stuff up here. But So this kind of, this talk, so to speak, this, this lesson has been a work in progress for a couple years now. Um, ever since I took uh, an Old Testament course and, at Gordon-Conwell and then became like fiery passionate about telling everyone <laughs> about the Old Testament. Uh, so this is, I've given this, this is I think maybe the fourth or so iteration of this. Um, so you guys are getting, like, the best stuff I got uh, until I do it again. Then it'll be better. Um, but uh, this is... Here, here's just some of what we're going to go over. I'm going to talk about two very prominent barriers to understanding the Old Testament well. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about an outline of the Old Testament, looking at it through covenants, which will help, is, is a way to help understand it. And then also some, the majority of the time at the end is going to be on some theological stuff, which is on the back of your worksheet. So my hope is that you'll have this to like keep, and it'll be a reference sheet for you. Um, but that's 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 the the gist for tonight. And there'll be chances to we're going to have some conversation for sure, and we're going to be going we're going to be bouncing around through some texts, but we're just not going to be able to go to every text that's on the worksheet. Uh, some of them I'm just going to give you so you can look it up on your own just for the sake of time. We're, we're just not going to be able to do it. Um, but there's a few key scenes that we'll go to and talk about. So that's what's coming. Hopefully, for those of you who like to know where we're going, hopefully that is helpful. Um, so barrier number one is reading the Old Testament as a redemptive movement text. Uh, this is an idea. Um, I have no original ideas. <laughs> Most of the ideas here have been synthesized from other people. Uh, this is an idea by a guy named William Webb, who wrote a book um, where he really... This does an amazing... The book is called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, which is a horrible title. So such a bad title, but it's a fantastic book, and he uses this this idea of redemptive movement to interpret it. So, um, if you have a Bible handy, turn to. Uh, oh yeah, there's a bunch of ESV Bibles up here. If anyone needs one, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, and we're going to look at this look at this text with as in a redemptive movement idea. So. Um, 
Here is this image that I put on the worksheet. And let me explain this before we look at this. Um, this is a beautiful selection of clip art. Uh, and here, what the idea here is that this is an ancient person, Moses, whatever. Uh, someone, someone in the ancient world looking at the Old Testament. And then this is us. See the, the keyboard? That means it's a, like a modern person. <laughs> this is a modern person reading the Old Testament as well. They're both, they both have perspectives that they're looking towards the text through. Um, the ancient person is looking at it obviously rooted in their culture and how it speaks to the, what they experience of the world. And we are looking at it as to how and comparing it to how we experience the world, which, as we'll see in a moment, can lead to some serious confusion. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 21. Not verse 10. We're going to look at that too. But um, just look at, look at verse 1. So, if in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, this is the idea of the promised land, they're going into the promised land, and Moses is giving this speech. If in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out. They shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has not pulled any yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. Going on and on and on to verse 8 says, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. So, lots, lots of language here about what to do when someone is found dead in between villages and cities and no one knows who did it. This is the, this is the situation. So, put this in the redemptive movement model. Imagine someone reading it in that culture. When we read it in our culture, this looks... Insane. This is barbaric. So what's happening is you find, you find a person dead in the road. You're supposed to measure to the closest cities. Whichever city is closest, the authorities from that city come out and they take a look at it. And then they take a cow that's not been used for work and they kill it at the spot. And that provides atonement for this murdered person that no one knows who killed them. So when we look at this... We just think this is absurd because we have forensic evidence and we have a, the, our legal system, which would study this. But if you think about the culture at the time, just as much as is possible, think about what would happen in this setting if these laws were not in place. Someone finds out their brother, uncle, whatever, father is killed in a, in a field. No one knows who did it. Say that that person came from a near, nearby town. What, what do you think would happen? What would happen next? Yes. They would go to another neighboring town. Maybe they'd try to chase down who killed it. They would start killing people, probably in retribution. Um, they might then be upset because maybe they didn't actually do it. And then maybe they would come back and kill someone else. So this is a, a chaotic situation, potentially chaotic situation. So this law here to us looks insane because killing a cow. You know, what, what is in the world? This is actually providing uh, a way to atone for a situation to limit, limit the depravity of the surrounding world, right? So this person's living in this culture where this, this isn't naturally provided for. The Bible is pushing this culture forward from where it currently is to be a more fair, just, whatever, equitable society. From here, 
pushing it forward. This is the redemptive movement idea. It's always moving forward. From, from, this is not to say we've advanced per se, but because we have such a radically different culture and we have ways to take care of this, and we are past Christ, Christ is the pinnacle of the redemptive movement, we are past that, so when we look back on it, it just looks barbaric to us. Right. So one more example in this chapter. Skip down to verse 10. This one really, this, is, this can really get people going. <laughs> when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, you take them captive. Verse 11, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. That's important. After that, you may lay with her, go into her, have sex with her, and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But, and this is also not an important one, if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Okay, let's put this through this again. Modern person reading that, this is crazy, Bible is barbaric, Bible is primitive, Bible is, you know, horribly sexist, all those things, that, that rhetoric you hear when you go, like, to blogs and YouTube and stuff. Uh... That is this person reading this from our perspective, which admittedly it sounds horrible because it's basically providing a way for you to go in and have war and take a woman captive. And these are the, these, you know, you can do that. These are just things you got, you got to do. So it looks incredibly, incredibly barbaric to us. But again, what would happen? Think back to the modern, to to the ancient world rather. What would happen if these laws were not there? What what would happen? Of course. Yes. Rape people. Probably, possibly not take them home. Do you think they would give them a month to grieve the loss of their family? <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you think they would bother to, at the end, you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her? Suppose, even best case scenario, suppose someone did go, raped a woman, and actually, best case scenario, took her into the household, then decided they didn't want her anymore. They just cast her off. That woman has no life now in the ancient world. Absolutely zero life. No protection. Her family has been killed. Anyone who would have protected her has been killed and discarded, and now she's left. So here, this is, this is radically different because we reread this in our setting, and it's, it leads to confusion because what is the Bible trying to say here? But as a redemptive movement from the culture that it is speaking into, it's actually very progressive. Israel is the only, to, in any archaeological evidence so far that we have, Israel was the only society in that world at the time that had laws like this, that had laws that protected the women of the culture that you just decimated in war. That, that's, that's insane in compared to other, compared to um, Hammurabi's code, you know, compared to the Hittites, the stuff that we're discovering about the Assyrians. It just doesn't exist. So this whole, I get, I get so frustrated with the whole, Oh, the Old Testament is so primitive and barbaric. You know, it's just it's it's not seeing it in this redemptive movement idea. Um, I understand why people do that because if you just read it, a so-called flat reading of the text, you just kind of read it and apply it to what what we know of the world now. It looks horrible, but so that's one example. This redemptive movement idea is, is a huge barrier to people reading it and understanding it. So, questions or thoughts about that? Are there ways that you can see this being helpful in your own reading of the of the Old Testament? Or what do you think about this redemptive movement idea? I'm a little confused about the name. So redemptive movement has nothing to do with some progressive idea. Like right. It's not It's not a movement. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about redemptive movement, and you said the pinnacle is Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. 
So we're looking at it through the eyes of the person in the middle of the story, and the movement is toward the cross. Mm-hmm. Is, is that where the So you're trying to figure out where the movement piece lines up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the movement... I question. I want to see if it's the same question or add to it, which is, you said the barrier is to read the Old Testament as a redemptive movement. The barrier is that people don't read it as redemptive movement. Okay. I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. Yeah, so so the movement is movement from... The, the, the text of the Bible is essentially a, a head, so to speak, of the culture that it's speaking into. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, or? Yes. 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 That's I, I've heard the image of a click. God is like one click ahead of where the culture is at the time in the Old Testament, he, and He's just moving them forward a click at a time. Um, and ultimately, and one thing I want to add about this is that what I'm not saying here is that we are the enlightened people reading the text. Um, the reason we are on this side is because we're on this side of Christ. So there's a huge lie. This is the other side of the pendulum. There's a huge lie that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which is that anyone, like that, that you are, because you are modern, you are ahead of anyone that was before you in terms of your understanding of humanity and culture and God. Like, so this chronological snobbery idea really comes out of the Enlightenment, out of, out of the 1700s, out of France. Um, that is not that is not what this is about. This is because we are on the other side of Christ. So Christ, to think of um, Luke 24, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears after he's resurrected, and it says that he took them through the scriptures and explained everything concerning himself. Christ is the this is why the bookmark there in the center. Christ is the the uh, key that unlocks understanding everything, not our modern ideals, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to put, there's like a caveat here that, yes, we are on this side looking back, but we're on this side of Christ. We're not on this side of being smart, modern people. <laughs> Does that make sense? So that, that's just, that's super important. And yeah, that's another, that's another huge lie uh, that contributes towards this barrier, is that we are post-enlightenment. We know how the world works. We know how medicine and science and all these things work. Uh, so the Bible is just primitive nonsense that they didn't have any idea how any of that how any of that works. Um, that's a huge lie. That's a huge problem. Does it make sense how this is kind of a barrier that keeps people from understanding the Old Testament text? Is this, is this understandable? Does anyone else have any questions about about this? Because this is really important. Yeah, yeah. I would say before I heard, I heard this before. Yep. I was too Yeah. <laughs> You're on this side of the, uh, yeah. But um, I wouldn't say like, before I heard that, I already had kind of like a general idea of what you're talking about. Because like, mm-hmm. I would have thought, you know, like I know there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that you don't seem to like make sense to you, but you just figure, figure that God had a reason for that time being to do it like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure it's probably helpful to just remember too, like you probably won't be able to figure everything out, but this is a good, good to see later. Yeah, and my hope, and the reason I share this with students mostly is because, especially, like, and you probably see this in workplaces and stuff too, but my hope with explaining this to people is that you aren't, when someone berates 
your text, your your holy text, which is the Old Testament, when someone attacks that, uh, you have this in your mind to say, well, wait a minute, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Like, uh, you know, it's the, the Old Testament talks about, you know, dashing babies against the rocks. Like, that's one that the that I see thrown around a lot from from so-called atheists and stuff. But um, you can say, like, wait a minute. Uh, you're just kind of throwing things around. You don't actually know what you're talking about. But but a lot of people like and I, and I I've been there before too. Where you just kind of clam up and you're like, oh gosh, this person's a really good point. Uh, you know, there's some scary stuff in there. I don't understand it, so I'm just not going to engage. Um, but there actually is really thoughtful ways to read it. Um, that kind of get away from that. So, so there yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. We're going to talk about the law later, so I think I'll get to that. That's a really good question. So the idea is, like, if would following the Old Testament laws be regressing back to here if we did it today? Yeah, yeah. We'll talk. I'm going to talk about the law a little bit, so hopefully that'll be helpful. But let's talk about barrier two. Um, barrier two is simply put, covenant language. Understanding the language around covenants is hugely important for understanding the Old Testament and not being intimidated by it. So, here's a picture. So, this is this is actual, um, this is true to the ancient world. A political or a national agreement, this is what a covenant was. Um, a political or a national agreement between two kings. The king of higher power or higher status in the agreement was known as the suzerain, which is, that's how you can see that to spell it. The king of lower power or status was the vassal king. This is very important. Um, so let me let me paint a little bit of an image here. When to say a uh, king, maybe the Amalekites or some 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 kingdom, if they waged war, they defeated a lesser nation, lesser power. They might strike up a covenant between the suzerain and the vassal, the king of the conquering power and the king of the conquered power. They would come up with a covenant, an agreement between the two of them. And what would happen was they would ratify the terms of the agreement of the covenant. They would say, you operate as you know, a colony, so to speak, of our empire. Uh, you honor these terms. And what they would actually do, this actually would happen, is that the kings, the two kings that were agreeing to the covenant would come together for a meeting. They would take animals and they would cut them in half. And they would lay them out, separated, and both kings would walk through the halves of the animals. This is where the term cut a covenant comes from. You would actually cut the covenant into the animals and the blood would be on the, on the ground. And you would walk in between. And the, sim, the sim, symbolism of doing that was saying, both kings were saying, if I don't honor the terms of this covenant, may what happened to the animals here on the ground happen to me. And that's the symbolic act of walking in between them. That's hugely important. If uh, you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 17. So I'm reading the ESV. I'll just read this scene. When This is Abraham kind of falling into a vision, right? This is Abraham um, right after he has been given the promises from God. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. If you jump up to verse 9, God is saying, Bring me a heifer three years old, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So keep this covenant image in mind. Now jump back down. 
The smoking fire pot and flaming torch passes between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So this is God entering, and we have archaeological evidence to explain how these kings would make these covenants. So this is God entering the language and the scene of the time that would be immediately understood by Abram, who is a man of wealth and status, from what we can tell. Um, it would have been immediately understood that, oh, this, this king, this God, is making a covenant with me. But zoom into the story and note, who is it that actually walks through the pieces of the animals? Is not Abram, actually. It's, it's God. Who does not walk through the pieces of the animals? Abram, yes. So this is, this is important because God is saying, God is stooping to walk between the animals and say, he's in effect saying to Abram, like those kings would say, if this covenant does not, if you don't get the land, if you don't get your descendants that num- outnumber the stars and the sand, if you don't get those things, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And I find it incredibly, incredibly powerful to have that image and to think of Jesus on the cross centuries, centuries later, spilling blood. Um, but, but no, what were you going to say? With Abraham not walking through, does that mean that God just has to keep his under the covenant, but Abraham doesn't necessarily have to keep those? That's a good question. We're going to talk about this with covenant language. But the, the, what I think is powerful about this is God, who is clearly, God is inverting this formula. God is clearly the suzerain, so to speak, of the covenant, but God is the only one. He's not requiring Abram to walk through. So God is basically saying, this covenant this covenant's going to happen. Um, this covenant's going to be kept. A um, couple more things about covenant language that are really important. Uh, and this is the actual language that would be used. If the vassal, if the lower-powered king, if he honored the covenant partnership, he, was, he would be blessed in the covenant. He would be blessed, and he, it would actually would be said that he loved the king. So those are, we use those terms a lot in kind of a fluffy way, you know, blessing and love and stuff. But in, in the time, if you honored the covenant, you were said that you loved the king. Like, if you, you loved the more powerful king by honoring his terms, and you would be blessed by the covenant. And on the flip side, if you broke the covenant, especially if you were the vassal, you would be cursed by the covenant, and you, you would be said that you hated the king. Um, so love, hate, blessing, and curse was very, like, it had a political kind of national political edge to it um, in the covenants. Um, couple of verses. We're not going to necessarily go here for the sake of time, but I would write this down. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 14, is the list um, of the covenant blessings. And this is from uh, the covenant with Moses that God made. It starts, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you. Lord will set you high above the earth, and he there's a list of blessing after blessing after blessing. And then, conversely, the second half of um, Deuteronomy 28 are the covenant curses. So this is where you can go, and then also Leviticus 26, I listed there on the worksheet. You can go there just to see a list, and if you think about it in terms of kings making a covenant with each other, it kind of it brings a new kind of realism, I think, to what's happening, what God is doing with the people here. So then, thoughts or questions about the covenant stuff? <laughs> you notice that uh, that longer list there, yeah. Yes. Other thoughts about how might like how might this be helpful in terms of understanding what's going on in the Old Testament? Any questions or ideas? Mm-hmm. 
that God is kind of doing the same thing with you. Like, mm. You might seem like you're really slow and like haven't gotten very far with you, like you're moving us. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, the bad thing, theologically, the writers of the Old Testament were very careful to, to say that the bad things that happened to Israel were connected to the covenant curses because Israel did not honor the covenant that, um, that God made with them. And um, the, ultimate, the ultimate outcome of that was the exile when the temple was destroyed and they were pulled out of the land. Because one of the promises to Abram was, you will have this land. Um, and one one thing I want to add to this too, there's um, it's pretty common to and it's easy to think of the Jewish people, the Jewish religion as a works so-called works-based religion, which certainly there's some of that going on, just like there is in Christianity that it can encourage works-based. But I I really think at the core of it, it was not works-based. It was God made a promise to the people, like the they were not earning the covenant, they were not earning their salvation. It was already granted to them. Uh, they were given a way to live, to to live in that salvation. So I really don't think, especially early on, and I even think a lot of the Pharisees weren't weren't thinking that they were trying to earn God's salvation. They were trying to earn God's honor. They were just living in a way to to keep what they'd already been given. So the analogy that someone, I was talking to someone about this, and the analogy he used was like, oh, so it's kind of like, you know, I'm just going to wear the hat and the jersey of my favorite team, um, you know, because because they won the game. <laughs> you know, they won the game, so I'm just going to kind of do the things that, that tie me to that team. Um, I'm not earning the victory. I'm not doing anything like that. And I actually thought that was kind of a cool, good analogy to it. Yeah. One thing you just said about it, you know, that it led to the exile was sort of the ultimate um, experience of the curse. Yeah. As a result of breaking the covenant, and and you said that that writers would <coughs> focus on the curses that came to Israel as yeah. a result of breaking the covenant. Or at least, at least some, at least the prophets understood it. The ones that are trying to explain why it's happening. Yeah, that's how they go. That's how they explain it. And, and uh, but I'm guessing that maybe a lot of Israel didn't get it no matter how because what, what strikes me is that the ultimate is actually that salvation and, and the curse landing on Jesus is um, something they couldn't get their brain around a consequence of what we just are talking yeah. about yeah and Paul actually that's a good preview for something later too because Paul Paul tries to nail that what you just said that's like a huge point for Paul is to help people understand the, how the curse connects to what happened on the cross um, yeah, that's a really big deal. So, yeah, so, um, I don't know where I put this. Oh, that's coming up later. Uh, but preview of this point, uh, the everything, the, the Old Testament writers were writing to grapple with this notion of God and who God was and what God was doing. But the reality is that the, the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, they, when they were putting pen to paper, they did not have the full revelation of God in Christ when they were writing. That's not to say that what they were writing was wrong or incomplete or something, but they, 
They, did, they just didn't have that revelation when they were putting pen to paper, so to speak, whereas Paul and the Gospel writers did. And so they're reaching back to these things and saying, here is what all this means now, um, which is huge. But that's, we're going to get to that with the New Testament section. So that's just a little, little taste. <laughs> um, okay, this is a little blurry, but um, here is this covenant outline of the whole Old Testament, which I think is super helpful. Actually, sorry, before we talk about that, uh, two barriers... Reading the text as a redemptive movement and seeing the covenant language kind of working out. I've, I've come to see those as two really important things. Um, before we move on from that, are there other questions about those two barriers particularly? Or thoughts about them? I just want to make sure there's a chance for people to fire away. All right. Covenant outline. This is, uh, again, not my idea. This is a woman named Sandra Richter developed this, but I, I love it. This is this diagram, I'll just explain it briefly and then we'll step through it. This diagram pictures the progression of the Old Testament. It starts with Eden, and the reason this is an open V is because Eden was intended for all of creation and all people to experience it. This pinch point here is the fall. The fall twisted the intention of Eden. It twisted the intention, God's intention for all of humanity. And then what happens through the course of the Old Testament is these building blocks of these covenants that build out and out and out until they end with the new covenant, which we'll talk about, that is, again, for all people. So God is taking his original intention and stepping through with people, working it out to get back to this point where it's back for all people again. And I find this really, really helpful in terms of seeing the direction of where these things are going. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on these, and we're not going to actually go uh, to, I don't think, any of these texts right now, but... um, Genesis 9, 9-17 is where what's called the Noachic Covenant is, is sealed. Many of you are familiar, especially if you grew up in Sunday school, you're familiar with the rainbow and um, Noah coming out of, out of the ark. Uh, this is the first, in terms of the covenant language, this is the first covenant God makes um, in the Old Testament. Is to say, what, what is the covenant? If those of you who remember, what, what's the covenant he makes? Exactly, yeah, he'll never again destroy the earth. Um, Genesis 9, Genesis 6 through 9 of the story of Noah. And Genesis 9 says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So the covenant, this covenant is still active <laughs> for us today. Um, He says, I establish my covenant, again, covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So one other thing, too, is God's character. When when I started kind of rediscovering this stuff from my own heart, the idea of God's faithfulness became real for me. Um, because, it's, again, it's a thing that we, we sing about and we talk about a lot, and a lot of times we talk about it in terms of God being faithful like to us individually, which is true, totally true. God has been faithful to me in some powerful ways. But when you zoom out and look at history, like God is faithful to this covenant. God is faithful to these covenants, and we can rest in that because it's God's character to be faithful. So this isn't a God that makes a covenant and then changes his mind and says, oh, Earth got bad again. <laughs> I made that deal with Noah, but I'm just going to reboot again. Um, you know, we, there, there's like a really tangible uh, outcome of God's faithfulness in that God does not turn back on these things, right? So that, that to me, at least, is really, really powerful. Um, 
And the Abrahamic, you just add ik on the end of the names, and that's how you get the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is Genesis 12. Does anyone know off the top of their head what God promised to Abraham? Yeah, yeah, your descendants, you'll have land, um, you'll have a people. All that. Oh, yeah, kids' quest? Yeah. Yeah, babies, land, and protection. <laughs> Simply put it, and we already talked about the ratification scene, but Genesis 15 is where God rat- like seals and cuts the covenant with Abraham. Um, Mosaic covenant is the covenant with Moses. Uh, th- there's there's actually books about this, like Leviticus, parts of Exodus, there, Deuteronomy. These are all huge books. But does, it, uh, does anyone know what's in Exodus 20? Why that chapter is significant? Off the top of your head. This is like Bible quiz time. Yeah, it's Ten Commandments. Yeah, yep. So that kind of like. The Ten Commandments kind of typify the whole uh, covenant with Moses. What's really interesting about the covenant with Moses is that this is so far, as we're stepping through, this is the only covenant with blessings and curses attached to it. So these other, oh, the other covenants had blessings, but this is the only one that had the two-sided coin of blessings and curses, meaning you could keep or break it on the human side. So Noah, no one could break God's covenant with Noah. No one could break God's covenant with Abraham. And this, the order of this, just as a point here, the order of Abraham's promise before Moses' promise, this is hugely important for Paul. Um, Paul makes it very clear that God promised all this stuff to Abraham even before the law existed. That God promised to Abraham that the nations would be blessed before the law was ever a thing. And the Jewish people got so wrapped up in the law and what the new Christians were supposed to do with the law that they forgot that God had promised to Abraham generations before that he was going to bless all of them. So Paul, in Galatians, Paul takes a lot of pains to untangle, unentangle that. Um, but the, Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, was that was the first covenant that people could break, actually. Um, God gave, within the covenant, God gave um, the possibility for people to break it. And then I want to spend just a minute on this because this is a very overlooked one. When I like discovered this, I was like, "Wow, why hasn't nobody told me about this one?" Uh, the Davidic covenant is in Second Samuel seven fourteen, and I do want to go there. So if you have a text that you can open, Was so, does someone else want to read it? I have been talking a lot. Second Samuel seven. Yep. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Yep, and jump up, sorry, jump up to verse 12. Read that too. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down to your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come out of your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yes, good. That should probably say 12 instead of 14, sorry. Um, so what's, what's God promising to David here? Well, yeah, that's, that's the immediate promises, but more, more long-term in verse 13, well, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the, the subtitle of chapter 7 here is God's covenant with David in my ESV translation, but God is promising David, God is saying to David, you'll have a kingdom forever. Um, this is why... This covenant was well known to the people of Israel. And this is why um, the New Testament goes to such great pains to show that Jesus is the son of David. Um, That whole genealogy in Matthew traces him through David's house. Um, This is why the people were looking for a king uh, to rebuild the house of Israel because they, they knew that God promised David that his kingdom wouldn't end. 
They all knew that. And then when they, their temple gets destroyed, they get exiled, they get sent all over the world. The question is, well, what, what's going on? Like, God, you made this promise. What, who, where is our king? And so when Jesus shows up saying the kingdom of God is here and he's of the house of David, that's pretty significant. Do what? That's kind of why there's that Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Israelis, like this is our land. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's true. That is true. That, yeah, this covenant, this, yeah, exists today in the way certain people interpret it can lead to uh, questions. Um, I want to read, if you want to go there, uh, you can, but Jeremiah 33, verses 19 to 22, you may want to jot these down. Um, Jeremiah, no, no, we're not jumping here yet. This is uh, about the Davidic covenant. Yep, Jeremiah 33, 19 to 22. I love, this is like, I love these verses. I won't give you a minute to find it. Jeremiah 33, 19 says... The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and it's important to note, Jeremiah was a prophet when the exile was happening. So Jeremiah was seeing just everything come apart at the seams. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Um, and I love, like, God is basically saying, if you can make the sun and the moon stop working, then my covenant with David will be broken. So this is a, like, hyperbolic, poetic way of saying, you are not going to break this agreement I made with David. Even in the midst of the exile, when things look like they're just, like, things look like they're just completely falling apart, and the whole project has been derailed, um, God says to Jeremiah, my covenant is still stands, and I honor it, and I recognize it. And think about how different is this picture of God from the other gods of the other nations that are surrounding the, the Philistines and the Moabites and the Egyptians. Like, how different is this God from all those other ones? Those, those other societies would say, oh, we're getting exiled. We angered our God. God's angry with us, you know. Um, Dagon, the Philistine god of the sea, is angry with us. So we, we did something wrong. So we better throw more offerings at him, you know. This is just a radically different, radically different understanding of who God is. So I love, I would, if I were you, I'd like circle and highlight that Jeremiah passage. I love it. And then finally, the last covenant here is Jeremiah. Flip over, if you turn to 33, flip over to 31, uh, verses 31 to 34. Could someone else read those? A couple verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach each other again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know them, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this, is the last, this is the last covenant, so to speak. That's like a good movie title, The Last Covenant. Uh, 
This is the this is the covenant God is. This is this is where things are building to. Is this covenant? And what are the points here that the law is going to be on the heart instead of an external law? God will be with us. We will be God's people. Um, they shall all know me, the least to the greatest. Their iniquities will be forgiven, and their sins will not even be remembered. So, and this is this is a powerful image. And again, Jeremiah was writing this. This is Jeremiah's word from God, but Jeremiah didn't know that Jesus was coming. Jeremiah didn't know. David didn't know when God promised him, you will have a kingdom forever. He didn't know that the person who would carry out his kingdom was a, a peasant rabbi from a backwater town that would be that would be killed by a government. Like He just didn't know that stuff was going to happen, but he knew that God would be faithful to it. Does that, is that making sense? Does that sink in? What? We're going to go to the back of the worksheet now. I want to spend some time on that, but I'm, cu- I'm curious if there are thoughts that you guys have about about this, or further questions or things you want to add. Yeah. Huh. Yep. Okay. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Good. <laughs> the Old Testament and the New Testament are something called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and one thing that's unfortunate about that is that. It just makes you think there's one, and this is helpful to mm. that the old covenant is actually the old covenant. So mm-hmm. I mean, oh, old covenants plural. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we focus on the 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 uh, Abrahamic covenant mm-hmm. as being the old covenant, but it's really this whole progression and stuff all kind of working together. Yeah, um, I love that distinction you made between the Mosaic covenant and the rest of them. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And we'll get to this, but Paul... That's basically Paul's point in Galatians, is that you've forgotten about all the other ones. <laughs> like You're so focused on this and the circumcision that you've totally forgotten about all the other ones. Um, yeah. Are you going to touch on what Lamar was asking about earlier? With the, um, about following the laws? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, if we have time at the end, oh. we'll get into that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um... Other questions about these the series of covenants? As, as this is a way to understand, a way to frame it. And, and to Ken's point, uh, Sandra Richter. This is a fantastic book, by the way, The Epic of Eden. I love it. Um, she she makes I think it's her that makes the point that each of these kind of like Noah is a covenant with a family, Abraham is a covenant with a tribe, Moses is a covenant with a people, a nation, and then David is a covenant with a kingdom. So there's kind of this outward like build build to the new covenant, which is for all kingdoms and all nations. Um, which I just think is kind of cool. Yeah, there you go. Let's talk theology. Um, so it should be said, first of all, I put two primary theological themes. Um, there's a lot more than <laughs> two, but two that I zeroed in on that I think are extremely helpful. Um, one is, who is God? So for me, if you're anything like me and you grew up super Sunday school, like just super immersed in it, um, the notion that Abram was a pagan, wealthy um, male head of a household in a very pagan city in Mesopotamia, the notion that he would somehow hear a call from God to leave his city and set out from, from in his mind, a God, some sort of divine, not human presence, the notion that he would hear that and follow it in faith 
is is radical. And that honestly, I never considered that notion until I was I don't know, probably like three years ago. Um, but this question is driving the Old Testament writers: is who is this God that called Abram out of his city? One of the early um, early uh, distinctives ways to identify God was the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That that term is thrown around a lot. Well, the reason for that is because Ab- or God talked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob directly in three consecutive generations, and then was silent for a long time. So people started coming up with this term. Well, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob, because God talked to those three guys. So that's our best handle for knowing who this God is. Um, and, and this is a huge driving purpose behind what the writers of the Old Testament are trying to explain. It's trying to explain who is this God that called Abraham out of, Abraham out of his city. Um, so on that note, God's name is finally revealed. And this is one of the scenes that I really want to go to. Uh, so flip back to Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3, just a couple of verses here. So this very famous scene, burning bush, prince of Egypt, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, but again, without this background of, remember, God, to this point, if you zero, if you like jump into the story at this point, God is, in their minds, God is the God of, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who called Abraham out of the desert, spoke to Isaac, spoke to Jacob, and has been silent. And now we're slaves in Egypt. But we know that at this point, God talked to these three men in these three generations, generations and generations ago. Now they're no longer remembered by Egypt, and now we're enslaved. And so Moses has this experience. Look at verses 13 to 15. Uh, Moses says to God, uh, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you, and he's probably thinking, and you've been silent this whole time. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who is. I am the one who shows up. I, I am here. I am. You know, what, however, that, that term is actually impossible to pronounce in the Hebrew. It's just a series of letters. It's called the Tetragrammaton, which is like the name of a transformer, I think. <laughs> uh, but... It's, it's, it's impossible to speak. It's, it was actually blasphemous to say it in, after this point in the Jewish story. Um, and it is, it's kind of impossible to translate, but the best that we can get is just, I am. I am here. I am the one who's showing up right now. Um, and so Moses is saying, identify yourself, I think, this is me thinking this, identify yourself beyond the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What am I supposed to say? Like, tell me your name, <laughs> because you are telling me to do this crazy thing, and you've been silent since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is a watershed moment for the Old Testament and for understanding who God is. God's name is suddenly revealed. So that, that, that is, I say that I use this term a lot, the uh, uh, oblivion of familiarity, but this scene has become just like so dull um, because we've heard it so many times, and, and it's anything. It's anything but dull. I think. Yeah. No, the story of Joseph is at the end of Genesis. The story of Joseph comes after all of this happens. Yeah. Yep. Oh, oh no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Joseph is. Sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and he was the third, um, the son of Jacob. So, yeah. Through dreams, yeah, but no, like, 
spoke. So Jacob had, yeah, no, that's a great question. So Jacob had the, the, uh, the God spoke to him in the scene with the stairs. Um, God spoke to Abraham, obviously. And then um, God spoke to Isaac. Um, God also spoke to Jacob in the uh, wrestling with the, with the hip. So there were these specific divine uh, scenes where God spoke directly to them. Um, does that help? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Re- repeats and says the covenant. So I, you know, there's a lot of speculation on this, but I, I kind of think God was saying, God knew that if he didn't show up in multiple generations, that people would just kind of forget and move on to some other God. So I think God showed up like just enough to say, no, I'm here, and to like solidify it in their understanding, and then showed up again with Moses. But yeah. Is there like a part in the Bible, like, I can't remember where, but like when God says like, I am Yahweh or something like that? Mm. Well, that's a good question. Yah- Yahweh is the en- Englishized version of the Tetragrammaton because the the Hebrew characters are basically roughly Y-W-H-W. Um, but in Hebrew, it's impossible to pronounce. And it was actually, like I said, you weren't supposed to say it. So, I get in trouble with this. As a side note, there's that song by Phil Wickham um, where it's like, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name or whatever. Um, uh, because that is like, this is, sorry if you love that song, but I hear that and I'm just like, oh, it makes me cringe because it's like, the Jewish people, that that was like, we love to shout your name, Yahweh. No, you're not supposed to say it because it's blasphemous to say it. Anyways, uh, so, um, sorry, sorry any, any Phil Wickham fans in the world? That was my favorite song. <laughs> uh, I'm in the business of ruining well, songs. Your question was, did he, did he ever say, I am Yahweh? Yeah. Actually, he doesn't. I mean, I right. am is Yahweh. Yeah, I am means Yahweh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Which no, that's a good question. It's relevant. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It has a lot of meaning later on. And to skip to the New Testament, all of, especially in the book of John, all of Jesus' I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection, they use, the Greek writers used uh, a Greek term called ego eimi, which means I am in Greek, but it's a redundant way to say I am in Greek. If you were just saying, I'm going to the store, you know, you wouldn't say ego a me going to the store. Uh, that's a really redundant way. So the Greek writers, you in all of those sayings in John, they say ego a me to point back to this. Uh, so it's a very, we lose that in English a little bit because we just don't have quite a direct counterpart. But the Greek writers were, they were trying specifically to say Jesus is, Jesus is using this term. Um, okay, so. Also, God's character. Um, I, this is another one of my favorite verses, Exodus 34, 6. This will be very familiar um, to many of you. But uh, what are, so just quick, what are, what are some common characteristics that pe- pe- non, non-Christian, maybe secular society, what are some common characteristics they would say God of the Old Testament is? Judgmental. Judgmental, wrathful. Yeah. Any, anything else? Scary. Scary? <laughs> yeah. What? Jealous, yeah. Angry. Angry, yeah. A lot of wrath, a lot of, a lot of judgment. Uh, look at Exodus 34, 6. This is um, after the Ten Commandments. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So 
that is a list, that is like a point-for-point list of characteristics that are opposite of what people think the God of the Old Testament is. And I understand to to an extent why that is a kind of popular image, just because there's a lot of hard stuff in here. Um, But that that verse is so sorely needed um, in that conversation. Um, So this is also, in in, in, in the the question of who is God, this is Moses starting to wrap his mind around the character of, of this God. Um, so, just a quick note. Uh, I think a big point of the Old Testament is ha- is painting God in contrast to surrounding gods. Painting God in contrast to gods that are around in other nations. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but the full revelation of who God is in Christ is still to come. And I listed a couple uh, texts there that, that talk about this in the New Testament. So, there's this tension of like... Un, of, of kind of having glimpses of who this God is, and there's kind of, in, back to that covenant stuff, there's kind of a step, step by step, like getting more, getting more knowledge of who this God is, getting more of an understanding of God's character. But the tension exists between living in, in, in faith, of, who, that, of, of believing God is who God says he is, but then not yet seeing Jesus. Does that make sense? Are there questions about that? This is the theme number one. Theme number two of the many, many, many other ones is God. So who is God and then God's plan for the world that's unfolding? Uh, one element, there's many elements to this. I just kind of narrowed down a few. Uh, one is a coming Messiah. So we talked about the Davidic covenant and the kingdom that would never, never end. Um, a text, one text for the coming Messiah is Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Does anyone off the top of your head know what is significant about Daniel chapter 7? It's not the statue. That's a good guess, though. That's really close. That's earlier in the book. Uh, this is... Does anyone else have any thoughts? Do you? Oh, no, that's no. It's, uh, this is the term son of man. comes from this, this text here. Um, this is the vision. Daniel has the vision of the son of man coming on the clouds. Um, some people translate it one like a true human. Like the true human is, is one possibility. But son of man... If you actually tally the way Jesus refers to himself in the four Gospels, Son of Man is far and away his favorite way to talk about himself. <laughs> it's that he almost never calls himself the Messiah, actually, but he calls himself the Son of Man. Uh, but this, this vision, Daniel 7, is a, is a crucial text in the Jewish mindset for understanding what the Messiah would do when he would eventually come. Also, Part of, so this is part of God's unfolding plan for the world. The Messiah would come, the Son of Man would come, uh, be the judge, be the, be the king. Then also the nations would be gathered. This is also um, overlooked, I think, unfortunately, a lot. Uh, some texts for this. We talked a lot about Gen- Genesis 12. It's huge. Hopefully you're starting to see some like patterns in the, in the chapters that are easy to refer to. Genesis 12 is God promises Abraham that the nations would be, would be blessed through him. And then Micah 4, 1 through 4, um, does anyone have, like, a, is, is anyone using a smart Bible that they can look it up really quick? Would you mind pulling it up, Rachel? Um, and then if, could someone else look up uh, Zechariah 14, verse 9? Any? Chris, cool. Yeah, go ahead and read Micah. That's fine. Yep. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and people will stream to it. 
Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Mm. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit down under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord God Almighty has spoken. That's great. Thank you. So you get the idea there. The vision is nations are coming. Nations are seeking Jacob. Nations are being judged by this mountain, the God on this mountain. So the vision was always for all nations. Always. Um, Never just one, never just a few. Um, Awesome. Thank you. And we already talked a little bit about this. We'll get to the Zechariah text in a bit, Chris. Uh, We already talked about this, but... um, so, this is just a couple points. There's more that could be said about God's plan for the world, but I think these are important. The Messiah would be coming, rooted in the Daniel 7 vision. The nations would be gathered, rooted. There's also a ton of stuff in Isaiah, if you read about the different nations. And then, the new covenant would, be, would come, as we talked about with Jeremiah. And, lest you think I'm not going to mention sin, <laughs> uh, the covenant would finally deal decisively with the problem of sin. So, Jer- again, Jeremiah was saying the new covenant would be cut and sin and iniquity and transgression would not be remembered anymore. Jeremiah was saying that. And Jeremiah was saying this well before he knew what God's plan was in Jesus. He just knew that it was coming and that sin would be dealt with. So sin was, again, the thing that was causing the Jewish people to cycle through the sacrifices and the temple system. But they knew, at least those who knew of Jeremiah and who read the texts, knew that there was coming a day when that sin problem would be dealt with. Um, And this is God's plan for the world, which included, again, dealing problem with, you know, Jesus didn't come to take away the sin of one nation. <laughs> Jesus came to take away the sin of all nations. So those are two. Who is God and God's plan for the world are huge themes in the Old Testament and the direction of what's going on. All right. This is the stuff that I'm getting really excited about. So uh, this is the second kind of half of the theology here. And I wanted to spend some time. I, I haven't really done this in this presentation before, but... It's hugely enlightening, I think, to see how New Testament writers used Old Testament texts in developing their understanding of who Christ was. So it's important to pause just for a second and think, if I were an ancient person in between the Testaments, what is my conception of God and how difficult would it be for me to include Jesus into that conception? Like how, what things would I have to unlearn? What things would I have to rethink? to include Jesus into that, right? Like, this is a huge turning point in the history of the world. Um, and this is, where, this is where these gospel writers were. These gospel writers were saying, Jesus is this God, and this is why. We know it. So, um, first, let's look at... Uh, can someone pull up the Second Kings text 4, 42-44? And then, could someone else pull up... It's a text in Deuteronomy. I always get the numbers backwards. Actually, here, I'll just pull it up so I'm not really looking. Yep, here's it backwards. There we go. Does someone have the Second Kings text available? Yeah. Anyone? Cool. Um, go ahead and read. Yeah, just read the story, then we'll talk about it for a second. Okay. 
a man, a man came from the Baal Whatever. That's okay. He the man of God, 20 loaves of barley bread, baked among his first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elijah said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servants asked. But Elijah answered, uh, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord said. They will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Dang. Yeah, isn't that cool? How many people have never heard that story before? Yep, yep. So, uh, what kind of bread was it? Barley. Yep. Does anyone know what kind of bread the little boy had in John chapter 6? Barley loaves. Yeah, yeah. So, in that story, Elijah feeds a hundred people with, I think it's actually five, I don't remember the number, but some bar, is it 20? 20? 20 barley loaves. In this story, Jesus feeds thousands of people with fewer barley loaves. Uh, so this is a huge uh, contrast to, and you start thinking people started calling Jesus Elijah. People started wondering if that's who he was. Um, so it kind of makes sense when you see the comparison of the stories together. Also, uh, read um, in John chapter 6. I'm going to jump over there real quick. The same story. Um, can someone turn to the John chapter 6 text? Cool, thank you. And then, you'll, you won't read the whole thing, just for the sake of time. But if you could read... Uh, when I t- who was that, Jamie? Yeah. Or, no, it was Betsy, okay. When, uh, when I tell you, could you read verse 14 of that? 14? Yep. So, I'm going to read this Deuteronomy text, and we'll, we'll just juxtapose these for a second. So, Deuteronomy is Moses giving a speech to the people right before they go into the Promised Land. And in this verse... Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you, among you Jewish people, he will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Moses is saying this to them as they go into the promised land. Now, Betsy, could you read verse 14 of John 6? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Yes, so these people are saying, Moses told us this would happen, this is the guy. And if you know the story, they, they try to make him king at this point. Uh, it, it unfolds from there and they try to make him king and then Jesus does his Jesus thing and disappears and somehow gets away. But this is, you, so I'm, hopefully you're seeing where the layers of the Old Testament that are kind of, the New Testament is just, all these fibers are like woven from these Old Testament stories and these Old Testament texts. And you can understand the New Testament without reading the Old Testament, but man, it's so enriched when you see all this stuff in the background. Um, okay, moving on from there. We already talked about this. We're not spending a lot of time on it. But Jesus says in Matthew 26, I'll, I'll just read this. Uh, this is the scene of the Last Supper. Um, As they were eating, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to them and says, take and eat, this is my body, very familiar scene. And he took a cup, gave thanks and said, drink of this, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah said, a new covenant will be cut among you and sin and and iniquities will be forgotten. So Jesus is very clearly connecting these ideas and he sees it happening in his life. 
So that's all I'll say about the new covenant. But another question, what is the kingdom of God? In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, this is, Mark, Mark jumps as a, as a book, Mark just jumps right in, and it just, this is the first 14 verses of the book. It says that Jesus was, uh, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So, uh, Chris, could you read that Zechariah text, 14.9? Yep, so again, this, I wanted to pick something a little more obscure than the ones we've been going to. So the, all the prophets are riddled with this kingdom language. Zechariah was saying the king, God will be king of the earth. Everyone will be one with God. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's the son of David, and he's using this language, these themes all start to tie together. Um, and then I want to spend a few minutes on this before we finish with Paul. Um, this has been really powerful for me. So if you if you have a Bible, um, this is one of the scenes I wanted to go to. Turn to Psalm 22. But before we look at that, quick thing. So what happens when I say to you, we the people, or I pledge allegiance to the flag? You jump into pledge allegiance to the flag, United States of America, the Republic of Pakistan. Or uh, what happens when I say the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not one. Yeah, yeah. So you say these things, and it triggers what you know. Uh, what's interesting to me is the Lord is my shepherd is Psalm 23. Psalm 22 starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this in the, especially in the learned Jewish mind, but in the Jewish mind, this was, I pledge allegiance to the flag, this was the, uh, starting line of this psalm. And I want to take a minute to step through this because this was extremely powerful for me. And there are like, what was going on in the cross is a huge question. And this psalm holds so much in it. And remember, this psalm was written, it's a psalm of David. It was written by David or for David or somehow involved David centuries, centuries before the cross. So we're just going to step through a few verses. Um, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is crying out. Is feeling feeling cut off, feeling rejected. Jump down to verse 11. The psalmist says, But be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Jump down to verse 15. Um, my strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus was... What do we know about one of the things on the cross? Jesus was thirsty. He was given... He was offered vinegar. Um, jump down to verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What do we know about what happened to Jesus on the cross? His garments were taken, and the soldiers cast lots to own them. I've heard, this is a note, some, I have heard people use that text to justify Christians owning nice things. To say, well, Jesus must have had nice clothes, so um, uh, why else would the why else would the Romans have wanted them after he died? He must have had he must, so it must be okay to like have nice clothes. <laughs> and people can hang crazy theology if they don't go back and read the Old Testament. This is the the old the the writers of the Gospels were were pointing back to this Psalm, saying even in this Psalm, David was saying that my garments are they are divided up in cast lots. That happened to Jesus. They weren't trying to say Jesus had a really sweet toga or whatever it's just ridiculous but um and then verse 9 verse 19 the psalmist repeats but you O lord still do not be far off come quickly to my aid so this is a cry 
I feel forsaken, but God, do not be far from me. Um, verse 17 says, um, verse 16 rather, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And then finally, this is what really is extremely powerful for me. Um, the psalmist is saying, these things are happening. God, do not be far. Surround me. Be near. And then verse 24 says, For he, for God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. I think that Jesus is evoking this whole psalm in its entirety on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are, there are many ways to understand what's going on there. Um, and... One, one way to understand it is that God was separated from Jesus on the cross. Um, I, in my personal wrestling with this text, I am not so sure that that is what's happening. I think that the psalmist is saying, I feel forsaken and I feel cut off, but I know that God is near the affliction, God is near the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from me and he has heard when I cried to him. Um, and I think that this psalm is hugely important for understanding God or Jesus' suffering on the cross, but also Jesus crying out to God and knowing knowing that God was still near. Um, so I think I just think that's hugely important and extremely powerful. Um, let's talk a little bit about Paul. So foundations of Paul's theology. Um, Paul was the most learned of Jewish people, as he makes very clear. Um, he knew the scriptures. He was student of Gamaliel, who was... You can look at other uh, historical Jewish texts and are even archaeological evidence that talks about Gamaliel being a really wise rabbi. So Paul knew these texts. Um, we're just going to look at one thing here. And we're not going to spend too much time on it, but Galatians... This is what gets to the law about like what kind of Lahana and Sean were asking about earlier. Uh, Galatians 3, verses 6 to 14... This is the single densest collection of Old Testament quotes in the entire New Testament. This is just jam-packed with, um, with Old Testament references. So turn to Galatians. If you have a text. And could someone read this section, verses 6 to 14? And whoever reads it, I'm going to... I'm gonna, uh, pause and throw quotes out as you hit them. But could someone read uh, read that section? Yes. Go ahead. Were you going to? Uh-oh. Consider Abraham. Yep. He believed God and it, was credited, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce, in the, gospel, sorry, and announce the gospel in advance of Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Pause there. That's Genesis 12.3. All nations will be blessed in you, as we've been talking about. Okay, keep going. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Pause there. That is Deuteronomy 26, verse 27. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law. Because the righteous, the righteous will live by faith. You keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the law is not based on faith. 
On the contrary, the man who does not, sorry, the man who does these things will live by them. That is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the, of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That is from Leviticus 18.5. Actually, no, I missed one. That's Deuteronomy 21.23, sorry. The one I skipped, I shouldn't have skipped. So that's where all those are from. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. He redeemed, he redeemed us in order that, he, that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Awesome. Thank you. So, I mean, this is like, Paul in some ways is like throwing his credentials around here because he's tying all of these ideas from the Old Testament together in Christ. So, again, just to step through it, all the nations will be blessed. That was promised to Abraham, Genesis 12. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything in the law. That's in Deuteronomy. Moses was talking about that. The righteous will live by faith. That's Habakkuk. Um, but the one who does them, the works of the law, shall live by them. Leviticus 18. And then, curses everyone who hangs on a tree is from Deuteronomy. So, one, one quick note. Um, this is kind of back to, the, back to the works righteousness idea. A lot of times when we talk about the works, especially in the Old Testament, I think a more helpful term for it is um, deeds of Torah which is kind of sounds like a little highfalutin, but it kind of, we have this idea of like doing good works, but what was in the mind of Paul and what was in the mind of especially the Pharisees was doing deeds of Torah, do it, keeping the Torah, keeping the law. So you see the idea here is that with the law, what the Pharisees and what other Jewish scholars were trying to do is they were trying to basically, the best way I've heard it explained is they were trying to build a fence around the covenant, so to speak. So you've heard about how the Pharisees created all these like 613 commandments that everyone had to follow, right? You guys probably heard that thrown around. That, like there were all these just unbearable rules and everyone had to follow them. And that's true. But what the, what the Pharisees were trying to do, they were not, I really, I really believe this, they were not trying to create a works-based salvation system. They were trying to build a fence around the covenant that God built so that if you came into contact with their law that th that they wrote, you would hit the fence rather than hitting the Torah and breaking it and causing the curse, right? So they, they were, it was misguided. I'm not trying to justify it, but I'm trying to say that, that we have a, I think we have, there's a really big misunderstanding of what the law, what they were trying to do with the law. They were trying, the Pharisees were trying to basically protect the covenant of the Old Testament that we talked about to make sure the curses didn't happen again. But Paul is saying that you are forgetting that this promise to all the nations, which includes the Gentiles, this promise was made to Abraham before the law existed. And then he steps through this argument that curse is everyone who can't abide by all things in the law, but the people who do the things of the law will bring life. He's basically saying the law itself cannot bring life. Um, that's the point. The law was to protect you and to protect the covenant that God made, but life comes from God. God is the source of life. God created the law. The law is not the source of life. And therefore, it's okay for Gentiles to not get circumcised. That's the driving issue here in Galatians. It's okay for the Gentiles not to follow the, quote, deeds of Torah. Um, so, uh, one thing I wanted to say, too, about um, the curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Um, this is written back in Deuteronomy. This was, Moses was putting pen to paper 
way before the method of uh, crucifixion was invented by the Romans. So if you go back, we don't really have time to do that, but I, I find it, personally, I find it incredibly enriching to actually go back and read these quotes in the context of what is being argued in all these books. So Deuteronomy was arguing about someone being hung on a tree and how shameful it was to leave that person out. Um, and they would actually be cursed because of the shame and because of the unclean laws around being around a dead body. Moses was not talking specifically about crucifixion when he wrote this text in Deuteronomy. He was saying if someone is hung on a tree and left out, they're gonna, they experience curse. They are cursed. So, um, what does what mean? Uh, they receive, they're unclean, they're outside of the law. They are breaking Torah, basically. Yeah. Right. Well, it's also more about with the, uh, well, let's go back and read it. That would probably be the most helpful. Yeah. Right. And that's where, so we have, and that's why I talked about the curse and blessing language at the beginning, because we have this notion of curse being like, I'll put a hex on you, curse. But the curse meant being outside of the covenant, like being outside of the agreement, right? So um, I have it right here, Deuteronomy 21. Actually, what's interesting is this is, if you remember back, this is the same chapter we were looking at earlier with the redemptive movement at the very beginning. At the end of this chapter, it says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So this is, a, this is again, redemptive movement. This is how to treat criminals in the land that God gives you. So you need to take these capital punishment in this text. Uh, is, is okay, but you've got to respect the body, respect the family of the, of the person who got killed, and respect the land that God is giving you. So what Paul is doing is brilliant. He's taking this text that's about killing a criminal. Jesus was hung between two criminals. Jesus was convicted of being a criminal by the Roman state. He's taking this text that is completely, seemingly out of nowhere and connecting it to what happened on the cross. So that say, He's making the argument that Jesus experienced this curse for us. This is the exchange that happens. Jesus experiences the curse so that we don't need to experience it. But he's taking a text that was written under completely different pretenses and saying, this is, this, it's like when a pastor kind of gives an analogy, you know, from your life and saying, it's like when this happens. <laughs> Paul is saying, it's like when this happens with these men who are hung on a tree. This is what happened with Jesus. He experienced this curse. He actually experienced it. And so you don't experience it. And so he's, I mean, we could do like hours on just this list of texts, I think. But he's taking all of these theological ideas from the Old Testament and making a case in Galatians of who Christ is and how Christ is connected to all this stuff and how Christ sums up everything that God was doing in the Old Testament. And that's just one. I wanted to pick that sample because it is the densest uh, collection of Old Testament references in all, in all of Paul's writings that we have um, Okay, <laughs> so we have, we have five minutes before nine. I actually came in under under the deadline. That's kind of kind of proud of myself. Um, so, are there any before I, I do want to pray before we end, just to kind of like settle all of this stuff. Um, but are there any? Does anyone have any thoughts or questions or ideas? Yeah. I wanted to say to all of you that I 
people that were on the Old Testament, all the barbarian things that they were doing. And the people from now, there is no difference between them and now. We eat the same, come from the same roots, the same seeds. So one thing, when I started reading the Bible from page one, the Old Testament, I was like, what the heck? What is wrong with all you people? And then when I finished the Bible, I was like, shame on me, there is no difference between those people and now. It's that now we have more regulations, which is more regulated. There are laws, there are like human rights, there are things that people can't follow now. Before, one choose like, this is all that they can come up and, and just, I mean, it's like, yeah, God make like so many covenants. Until he made the last one, until Christ will come, and then everything yeah. will change. Uh, I mean, there is not much difference between... I mean, it could be very judgmental for somebody to start the Bible and just read the Old Testament and say, these people is crazy, or blah, blah, or this, but guess what? You're on the same... So, like it or not, even though somebody can say, I went to Bible school and all this thing, and now I'm a pastor and whatever, dude... You're gonna get put to the test, and trust me, you're gonna get hit pretty good because I bang and it sucks, and and it's like there is no much difference. So yeah, that's and that's the idea of the chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis is talking about. And we, I, I and I, man, the more conversations I have, especially with college students, um, people not much younger than me, the more conversations I have, the more I realize that we just have we've been like infected by this notion that we are the best we are the best humans that have existed on the planet um, because we have modern medicine and because we have the internet and because you know we just and because the average person can read more and we we have the printing press and we we just we have this it's such a lie and that's just what Danny is talking about it is just you have to call it for what it is because it is, it is a lie and I'll tell you what what the and it's a lie that comes from the Enlightenment, really. The Enlightenment, the 1700s, that whole revolution that happened. Um, we all live after that, for mostly for worse, but for better or worse, we live after that, and we we live in a world that functionally believes we are the best that humanity has produced. It's a very Darwinian idea uh, that we, because we're the most recent, because we've improved and improved, we are the best. And my counterpoint to that is that. The Enlightenment, <laughs> what the Enlightenment produced was two world wars and a holocaust and multiple genocides uh, and the atomic bomb. <laughs> the Enlightenment <laughs> is the reason that the atomic bomb was dropped on two cities in Japan and other countries are armed with enough weapons to destroy the entire human race. So those are the things that the Enlightenment has produced, right? So if you can argue to me that those are the best, if that's the best that humanity can display in the history of the world, then I think you have a huge... The burden of proof is on you, my friend, to make that case because I do not believe it. Um, and it's... And it, but this lie infects Christians too. Like we, a lot of Christians, especially in America, we we believe that lie that we are the best. Um, and one thing, at least for me, that the the shift that I've had to make, or that I that I am making, is to say, the best of humanity was killed on a cross. The the best human, the true human, the Son of Man, was executed by by a government that was put together by humans and by a religious system that was trying to find a loophole that was based of humans. That was the best human, and that was the pinnacle of humanity, not, not the people that are around us today. Um, 
And that, that like counterpoint to the world is, I think it's part, it's not the gospel, but it is part of the gospel that we say to the world, like, no, the best human was this person. We are not the best humans. Um, so, yes. <laughs> I'll have to say I agree with what you just said, Danny. Um, well, I think I want to be respectful of everyone's evening, so unless there's anyone else that's like... Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can check out the podcast page at joelwentz.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at joelthevaliant. And of course, you can always subscribe to 10 Minute Theology on iTunes. Take care. Thank you.